great afternoon and a blessed day to you, Philly's favorite listeners. I want to thank you for joining us. Whether you're joining us on our app, whether you're joining us at 100.7 FM or 99.5 HD3, I'm just so glad to have you in the pastor's office this afternoon. I want you to know that we just got done service and I'm still on a spiritual high. Today we finished our series on women of the Bible uh, and we finished off appropriately by talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Uh, We came from John, the second chapter, and those of you that know the word know that that's about Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana of Galilee. And we can learn so many lessons from Mary uh, about how to, how to how to be obedient to Jesus, how to show people to be obedient to Jesus, and how to demonstrate commitment, faith, uh, and and total devotion uh, to Jesus Christ by dissecting that text. But I always say this to you, if you want the whole message, go to the Northeast Baptist Church Facebook page, go to the Northeast Baptist Church YouTube page, and you can get the entire message. But today we are here and I'm excited. We've got three wonderful guests. We've got Fox News co-host of The Five, Juan Williams, and then we've got Jonathan Carl, the ABC News chief White House correspondent. And then we're going to spend a great deal of time with a young man. His name is Christian Walker. He is the son of NFL legend Herschel Walker, but don't let that fool you. He's blazing his own trail. He's got his own opinions. And what I want you to do today is hear his positions. Let's dissect his positions, and then we'll make decisions for ourselves. So I want you to sit back, relax for the next hour as we come on in to the pastor's office and have some great dialogue. Philly's favorite listeners is Pastor Jonathan Mason here in the pastor's office, and I am excited to welcome our next guest onto the show. You've seen him for years. He's a columnist with the Washington Post, with the New York Times, Emmy Award-winning writer. Uh, He's a Fox News political analyst, and he is also one of the co-hosts of The Five. It's my pleasure to welcome into the pastor's office so we can put some things on the table. Mr. Juan Williams. Juan, how are you this afternoon? What a joy to be with you, Pastor. Thank you for having me. Listen, I am excited to have you on the program. Uh, You are, and I will be very honest with you, you're somebody that I've followed for years, and um, I've had an opportunity uh, to read some of your books. Uh, I read your book on uh, Thurgood Marshall, but... Oh, man, look, let me just say thank you, because, you know, that's my favorite book that I've written, so thank you. Absolutely, no problem, but I I, want to draw a comparison, though, because many people don't know you wrote the book, Eyes on the Prize, uh, that covered the civil rights movement, Uh, and and, and I've shared with people that uh, today, in my mind, uh, some of the things that we're seeing from Charlottesville to, 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 to well, <laughs> right out there in Portland and everywhere else, it really, it really reminds me of the civil rights movement. Uh, as one who wrote a book on that movement and one who's living through uh, what's going on in Trump's America today, what comparisons can you draw between those two generations? You know, it's sad that we have to deal with this, Pastor. I was just thinking as you were asking the question. Wow, you know, because in so many ways we've made progress, but in so many ways it's like we're going backwards. And that's why you're asking me about a book that covers basically 1954 to 1965, you know, the Brown decision to the time that the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 and all the tremendous sacrifices people made to have those accomplishments, uh, you know, cemented into American life and law. 
And yet today what we see is a spike in the kind of hate crimes, the kind of thing that if you look back on Eyes on the Prize, you think about those civil rights workers being killed down south. And today you go and you look, you mentioned Charlottesville, you can see hateful white supremacists killing a woman uh, who was protesting against that kind of bigotry. Or you stop and you think about what's happened. Remember what happened down in that church in South Carolina? Uh, you know, and you say, how do these things, how does, you know, why is it what white supremacy is now, once again, the number one threat in terms of domestic terrorism, according to the FBI? It's not according to Juan Williams or Pastor John. It's not any kind of spin. These are the facts. And it does take you back to that civil rights era. And one other thought, you know, when you think about the passage of the Voting Rights Act, 1965, and you understand how much sacrifice went into just asserting the idea, gaining the assurance that black people would have the right to vote in this country. And you see voter suppression taking place today, voter intimidation, places being told, close your polling uh, place, limit your voting hours. You say, is that possible? How can that be happening in the 21st century? But it's happening. So, you're, you know, when you ask the question, it really set me off because I hadn't put it in my mind that way, but you're exactly right. Well, I, I, want, you, I want you to think about something. I want to kind of stay on this street real quick. Um, when we look at the civil rights movement, when we look at that era that Eyes of the Prize covers, you know, you talk about people who were fearless, like Hosea Williams, like mm -hmm. John Lewis, like Ralph Abernathy and, and C.T. Vivian, and, 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 and of course, Dr. King. Uh, I happen to be a member of Phi Beta Sigma, so you know I mentioned the Sigmas mm -hmm. first. But, 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 but when, I, when I think about today, you know, who are those voices in our community that are, that are standing up? Uh, I don't know. I think some of our voices are standing in front of the cameras. Not sure if they're standing up, but, but who would you look at as the ones that are really standing up and, and are fearless today uh, fighting for the rights of our people? Well, I think, you know, obviously we're dealing with a rash of these, I would say rash, I think maybe public exposure of the rash is what I should say of these police killings, police brutality. And you look at the common th person dealing with this is Ben Crump, the lawyer. I would say Ben Crump's doing a pretty good job. Uh, so I would take my hat off to Ben Crump. It's different in the way that we think about the civil rights era, because, you know, then you had a Dr. King, or you mentioned Hosea Williams. I could go down the law line, Jim Lawson. Of course, you know, we just lost, uh, you know, Congressman Lewis uh, from Georgia. Um, it's a different era in that sense. But I think Ben Crump's doing an outstanding job. I think that when you look at some of the people who have been willing to stand up and to stand up in a way that puts themselves on the line in terms of these Black Lives Matter marches, again, I think it's incredible. They're multiracial, multigenerational. Uh, oftentimes, you see church groups involved. But it's different than, the, necess than the, the leadership. So when I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, I'm not necessarily talking about the leadership because many of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement are not well-known. And I don't think that you could say, oh, there's someone that is now sort of galvanizing the movement. It's that they have triggered something that has such widespread appeal. And again, that has power in this era. I've watched you go to war uh, with uh, Greg Guthfeld, I've, I've, I've watched you on the five uh, uh, standing tall uh, about uh, issues that are impacting the, our communities. Uh, 
Right. Uh, but but I, I want you to share with our Philly's favorite listeners, uh, most of whom are black, uh, why it is so important this year and, and years in the future. But we're talking about 2020 right now. Right. Why it is so important for them to make it to the polls. What's on the line uh, uh, in just a couple weeks, November 3rd? Wow. You know, I, you know. remember when Joe Biden got in trouble? <laughs> what did he say, Pastor Jackson? You ain't black. If you ain't black, you, you know, you ain't, if you ain't supporting me. But, it, you know, to my mind, you ain't right. I mean, come on. How can you not notice what's going on with the killing of black people? Why do you think we have a Black Lives Matter movement? How can you not notice that the man in the Oval Office is talking about fine people on both sides, and he's got white supremacists with guns and tiki torches standing on one side? How can you not notice that when he talks about some of the leading black people in the country, he does so with total, total contempt? He didn't even go to John Lewis's funeral, said John Lewis didn't like him. So in other words, he was disrespecting a man who has done so much for our community. How can you not notice that when he talks about many of our black majority big cities, Baltimore I'm thinking of in specific, he says, who would want to live there? Who would want to raise a family rat infested? He sees the worst in us, the worst, Pastor John. He does not see the best of us. He does not see the light in our eyes, the light in our faces, the potential in our spirits. And you know what scares me about that? What scares me about that is I, there are people I've worked with for years. Before I entered into media ownership, I worked in radio uh, since 1995. And there are people that I work with that I've gone to lunch with. I've gone to their weddings. I've gone to their children's birthday parties. They're supporting this guy. And, and, and they find every reason in the world to justify their support of him while always ignoring the dog whistles. I, I, I got to tell you, it, it, it boggles my mind. It's, 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 it is. You know, I, I, I don't understand how 35, 40 percent of the country, given all that he's done, given the way that we're dealing with this virus that he has totally failed to handle as a leader, I, I, given the state that we face in terms of being a divided American people, given the fact that our economy now, you know, especially after COVID, is just in tatters, I just don't get it. How, what are they? I'm, it must be like it's like a club or they think that it's hip or something, but it's not reality. It's not. It's not. Well, I, know, I know we're limited on time, and I'd love to bring you back at some point where we can talk oh, I'd a little be delighted. more. But I have one last question. I asked it of Anthony Scaramucci a couple of weeks ago. I asked it of Jim Sciotto. I asked it of Geraldo Rivera. I want to ask it of Juan Williams, somebody I admire greatly. What does the country look like? Put on your futuristic goggles. What does the country look like on November the 4th? Well, you know, I don't have, I'm not a prophet, but I am a believer in polls, and I am a believer in looking at all the signs that are put in front of me and using the brain that God has given me. And all the signs indicate that right now you would have people saying President Joe Biden. All right. Well, I'm prayerful, uh, and I'm not a prophet either, but I believe in prayer. Uh, right. I am prayerful that for the future and for the sake of this country uh, that what you've just said becomes reality. Juan Williams, Fox News political analyst and co-host of The Five, 
I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today, and I look forward to talking to you again in the near future. God bless you, my friend. Bless you, Pastor John. Thank you for having me on. All right. Bye-bye now. Philly's favorite listeners, I want to thank you again for joining us in the pastor's office this Sunday, and and I want to introduce to you our next guest. Uh, You know who he is. He is the author of the best-selling book, Front Row at the Trump Show. Uh, And he's also the Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News. I want to bring into the pastor's office Mr. Jonathan Carl. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Reverend Mason. An honor to be here with you, sir. Listen, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. And I know time is tight. I want to get right into it. Talk to me about this Trump show. it's, It's really been the greatest yet most destructive show on earth, has it not? I mean, we have never seen one public figure so thoroughly dominate the public attention, not just in this country, but around the world for such a long period of time. And and he has viewed it uh, really as a show. That's why I call it the Trump show. It's not that I see it that way. It's that that's the way Donald Trump sees it. He sees his presidency as the greatest reality show in the history of mankind. And uh, he measures the you know, the ratings, uh, the, the, the ways in which he dominates uh, news coverage, even negative coverage, any coverage. And, you know, I, I mean, Lord knows, uh, I think we'll be talking for many years uh, about the destructive side of all that. He has seen this as, as, as the greatest show on earth. But, but I, I got to tell you, I think that he has proven to us uh, that democracy is nothing more than an experiment. I mean, he's pushed the boundaries uh, on every side of this thing, this thing we call democracy. Uh, what would another four years of Trump do to our country, in your opinion? Not really for me to say whether or not we can endure another four years of it, but he has pushed the limits of uh, in so many ways. I mean, he's running for re-election right now, and you know, the other day, he suggested that uh, that Joe Biden shouldn't even be allowed to run. Today, uh, he said that uh, Biden should be in jail. I mean, this is not like a normal uh, political dialogue where, you know, two candidates are, are hashing it out over policy differences. He's really raising fundamental questions about American democracy. You know, I, I believe we do have strong institutions in this country, and, and um, you know, I believe that, that – with these institutions are being tested right now. Let's 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 talk about the American people real quick. Um, the American people clearly are suffering. We look at the jobs report from last week. Uh, we look at we look at um, GDP, which which he thinks is going to uh, uh, be very positive come third quarter. But but I'm living in the real world, uh, and and I see people who are out of jobs. I see people in food lines here at this church. Uh, we serve food uh, on a weekly basis, and I see people in food lines that are that never thought they would be in a food line. Uh, I see people that are suffering and struggling. Uh, you're the chief White House correspondent for ABC News. You talk to all of the people that are at the table. Why can we not get a stimulus deal done to help the American people recover from something that's clearly not their fault? Reverend Mason, it's it's a shameful abdication of responsibility. Uh, you know, you, you see people who are, you mentioned the long food lines, throughout the country, uh, people waiting on long lines to get food to eat, uh, people who have lost their jobs and don't see a clear path towards getting those jobs back. Um, and to see 
not even an agreement to find any way uh, to, to help people after after the, you know, I mean, Congress came together immediately after the pandemic hit. You know, we went through uh, uh, the first waves of, of, of economic help and then nothing. It's all run out. And I, I, I really worry about it. And frankly, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could report to you that they're about to come to an agreement and they've, you know, come to their senses. But I I don't see it. I don't see it right now. I mean, I, I, I think that whatever help is to come and there must be help to come uh, is going to happen after the election. So I, I guess here's my point of consternation. Uh, we start talks, then the president says, we're done talking. I'm not going to talk anymore until after I win. Uh, and then he says, well, well, we're going to talk. We're going to go big. And he comes back with $1.8 trillion. Uh, as you know, Nancy Pelosi wants $2.2 trillion. You mean to tell me that they can't come to some kind of resolution uh, between those two numbers and give the American people the help they need? I mean, it's, it, is, it is shameful. And you, the, the two sides, well, you really have three sides in this negotiation. Uh, you have Nancy Pelosi, who has pushed for the biggest possible uh, amount. You have the Republicans in the Senate that want something dramatically smaller. And then you have the White House, which has been kind of all over the map, walking away from negotiations one day, coming back, saying they want to go bigger the next day. Um, that's why I say that the, 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 the talks right now are, are a total mess. And it doesn't help the fact that the president of the United States and the Speaker of the House have not spoken. They have not had a conversation in a year. A full year has gone by. So it's it's – profoundly dysfunctional and 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 if he loses the election my fear is that he'll have no no desire to to put anything on the table i i kind of see him as the the kid who takes his ball and goes home uh you know we might be in a situation where the american people won't get any relief until after january the 20th you know, I, I just have no idea what that's going to look like. If he loses and if the Republicans lose the Senate as well, I, I think that the uh, the transition period will be one of the, you know, most challenging times that we have seen yet. Now, I could also see a scenario where in losing, he'd want to go out, you know, with a, with, with something positive and, you know, take full credit. It's his last chance to take credit for something. Um, so he, you know, he may want to, he may want to come to terms. I'm not sure if, if, if what you're saying is the way it would play out. I, I just, I feel normally reverend that I can predict what Donald Trump is going to do actually as, as, as kind of unpredictable as he is, he's fairly predictable in that unpredictability. I, I, and I've known him for a long, long time because I write about in, in my book. Uh, but I don't really know what that lame duck period would look like with Donald Trump. I think there is a scenario where he would think, well, I lost, but now I'm going to do something really big and take total credit for it. Maybe he would strike a big deal with Nancy Pelosi. I've asked all of my guests this uh, question uh, over the last few weeks, and I, I want to certainly ask you as one who's right there on the front lines, uh, November 4th, what does our country look like on that morning? What does our country look like on November 4th? Yes, sir. Well, um, if you if you believe all the indicators that we have publicly to look at, public polling, the early vote 
trends in, in the key states. Unless Donald Trump turns things around in the final two weeks of the campaign, and, and, and he could. There's another debate. There's, you know, there, there, still is, there still is some time. It's running out. There is some time. But if he doesn't turn things around, there, there's a scenario uh, that, that he actually loses uh, pretty big. I mean, he's, he's down in the polls and all the top 12, down or tied in all the top 20 battleground states, at least in terms of the public polling. Um, so, the, you know, whether you have two scenarios, if, well, really you have three scenarios. If he loses big, we know the election results, it's, uh, you know, November 4th is about beginning that transition. Another scenario is he wins. It'll be narrow. Um, I think that they would concede that if he wins, it's going to be a narrow victory. Uh, and then third scenario is we just don't know because the election's so tight. There's disputes over ballot counting and in key battleground states, and we have legal challenges, and we're in a and we're in a long, drawn out uh, fight. So I, I I don't know what November 4th looks like, but it, it's going to depend on uh, it's going to depend on what happens on November 3rd. Right. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan Carl, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today. Before you go, please tell our Phillies' favorite listeners a little bit about Front Row at the Trump Show and, and where they can get your book. Uh, Front Row at the Trump Show is, is the most important work I have done in my career. I wanted to tell the incredible story of knowing Donald Trump as a, in, the, in the 1990s when I was a young Cub reporter and then being the guy that was covering his campaign and with him in the White House. It's, uh, I, I, I try to tell the story as it unfolded, um, I, you know, and it's, it's a story I think – I don't think there's been another reporter that has quite seen a president the way I have seen this president, and we certainly never had a president like this. So that's the story. Um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of material in there that I was never able to report day to day about about covering him and what I saw behind the scenes. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Even better, support a local bookstore. But it's out there. And uh, and I, if you read about it, hit me a message on Twitter or Facebook and let me know what you think. ABC News White House Chief Correspondent Jonathan Carl, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today, and I sure hope you'll come back and join us again sometime real soon. I would love to do that. Thank you very much, Reverend Mason. Good luck. Philly's favorite listeners is Pastor Jonathan Mason back in the pastor's office. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today. We certainly appreciate each and every one of you. And we're going to cap off today's show with a, with a conversation with a young man that many of you have seen on his various social media platforms. You've seen him on TMZ. Uh, you've seen him interviewed on many of the morning talk shows uh, across the country. Uh, I've been fascinated by uh, his opinions, but I'm, I'm very much fascinated by his background, uh, and I want to I want to I want to go a little bit more in depth today with him, uh, as opposed to uh, getting into uh, a conversation of ideologies. I want to learn a little bit more about this young man, and I want you to learn a little bit about him. Uh, I want to invite into the pastor's office this afternoon, Mr. Christian Walker. Christian Walker, welcome to the pastor's office. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, Christian, let me ask you a question. You obviously are the son of an NFL legend, NFL Hall of Famer, Herschel Walker. Uh, you, you, you grew up in 
Uh, well, I guess uh, a family where a lot of attention came to him, but now you're getting an awful lot of attention uh, for some of the, the positions that you've taken. Uh, before we even get there, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up as the son of an NFL Hall of Famer. Um, I don't think I, it wasn't super weird because he was always that. So it was just my normal. I don't think I ever thought about it. I didn't think twice about it. Um, but it was fun, always good experiences and yeah, super thankful. I got to live a blessed life. Like I got to live. Now, as a young man, did you feel pressured into becoming that athlete, or or what road did you take uh, to, uh, I guess, uh, you know, develop your own path? Um, I always was given the room to kind of create my own path, so I I never felt pressure. There was never pressure put on me, and I just did my thing. So. When we look at when we look at uh, the fact that you are, and I believe, uh, twenty years old now, uh, you're uh, at UCLA. What year are you in, and what are you studying? I'm a junior at UCLA. I'm studying Chinese, French, and international development. Now, where do you want to take that degree? And look, what, that's a triple major. Where do you want to take that? Uh, I'm super interested in those subjects, and I will probably not be utilizing them anywhere except in an entrepreneurial sense, um, especially with what I'm doing now. But uh, I think they're useful subjects. I always think foreign language is great. And then my international development degree is kind of like a um, poli-sci degree. So you became fairly famous here in the recent past because of a lot of the positions that you've taken, uh, I would say, against the left uh, and in support of the right. Uh, as a young man growing up, uh, again, son of NFL legend, uh, you're, you're, you're in a generation of technology where information comes to us rather quickly, uh, much quicker than it did in my generation. Uh, how did you come to the positions that you hold how did you end up I guess you would say right of center um I've pretty much always been a little bit interested in politics and I I did a lot of reading I did a lot of studying and this was simply the only side that made any sense to me so um although I didn't always speak about politics I always did the research I just started speaking this year publicly, making it super public, and I'm very strong on my position. Two things, two things you just said in that answer. One, you said uh, that you hadn't spoken out previously, but you also said this was the only position that made sense. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Why is it the only position that makes sense to be right of center? Um, I think right of center, for me personally, really holds down facts and it's, it's very fact-based and it doesn't necessarily appeal to emotion. So it's not always about how you feel. It's not always about, you know, uh, being super nice. It's about what makes sense, what's going to protect the country, what's going to protect your home. Not, it's not about everybody else. It's not about imaginary things. But, but okay, so I, I, I get that. But but you say it's fact based. So is that to say that the positions left of center are not fact based? Are they more based on emotion, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Many times, yeah. Talk to me about that. Give me an example. 
Um, for example, on immigration, um, the left, at least currently, a lot of times is championing open borders, although they may not say open borders, they'll pretend they're for border security. Um, there's a lot of lumping in illegal immigration with legal immigration. Um, there's demonizing the right for wanting strong border security, when at the end of the day, border security is the same thing as having a fence around your house. It's the same thing as locking your doors, having a wall, et cetera, et cetera. So you can sit here and you can cry about, oh, the poor illegal immigrants, but we're always going to have poor people in the world. We're always going to have less fortunate people people in the world. Let's take care of American citizens before we take care of people of the world. We're not a global humanitarian program. But is not the United States of America a country built on immigrants and immigration? Uh, how is it, how is it now that, how is it now that with this president and this administration that immigration has now become, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 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 something that we look down upon, something that we uh, in some ways are negative about in this day and age? I mean, our country was built on immigration. We're, we're actually not a country of immigrants. We're a country of settlers. Before European settlers came over and settled the land, um, America was not a country. It was a piece of land with a bunch of warring tribes on it. Um, and at the end of the day, America takes in more immigrants than any other country in the world. So until anybody wants to have a conversation with Russia, with China, um, with some other countries, I don't like being demonized or being looked at like we're so big and bad because we want a little security now. When we take, we've been taking in more immigrants than any other country in the world. So we are not a bad guy whatsoever. We're a very nice guy. Um, and at the end of the day, I want to take care of immigrants who got here last year and the year before. I want to take care of citizens of the United States. We just need to turn off the flow for a minute. I think those that would, I think those Irish that came in as a result of the potato famine, I think some of those uh, Hispanics that came in as a result of wars in their country, uh, I think some of the Africans that came in as a result of plagues and other things that went on uh, in their country would probably disagree with you that we're not a country of immigrants. But but I digress. Let's 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 think about this for a second. Our president, uh, President Trump, and he is our president until such time as he is elect, as he is either his term expires or he's beaten, uh, he's, his first position when he stepped uh, down from the elevator uh, was that uh, these South American countries uh, send us their worst people. Uh, I, I was talking to a Hispanic this past week who is in support of Trump uh, for another term. And he said, oh, he was talking about MS-13. And I said, really? Uh, I said he was blowing a dog whistle uh, that, that has not yet in any way subsided. Uh, uh, in our country, our country is more divided now uh, in terms of race than I've ever seen it in my 48 years. Uh, I'm curious if you believe that some of the things that his, has been said about immigration, some of the things that have been said about race from this administration have helped to bring this divide front and center in our country. Um, I think immigration is one of the top issues facing the country right now. It's changing the country dramatically on so many different fronts. It's destroying middle America. It's driving low-wage low wage jobs, their wages down. It, um, 
when you stop the flow of mass immigration, low-wage jobs, their wages are able to rise. It's just basic economics. So I think all this talk of divide and all this talk of, oh, it's caused so much divide, et cetera, we have a problem in the country. So if it's going to take him talking about it in a rough sort of sense to fix the problem, I'm all for it. I don't think it's caused division. I think it's, I think it's opened up a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and I think that's that. Let's 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 take a look at another one of your positions. I've heard you talk about Breonna Taylor. I've heard you talk about Jacob Blake. Uh, I've heard oh, yeah. you talk about some of the issues uh, surrounding uh, policing in our communities. Uh, I, you've got to, and I'm not going to say you have to, but but can you agree with me that in in minority communities, police are looked at as more of a military presence, as more of a negative presence, but in the white majority communities, they're looked that as partners in the community. Oh, when I talk to black women, they love police. So I think that's an absolute lie. Maybe criminal black men, but not black women. Now, what black women are you talking to that love the police? Help me out here. Um, in minority communities, when I talk to black when I talk to black women, and I ask. Hey, you know, are you for defunding the police? Are you for less of a police presence? They say absolutely not. We don't want to leave, lose our police. They're, they're our protection. So I don't, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I, I, I know a lot of criminal black men don't maybe, maybe don't like police. But when I talk to law-abiding citizens, women, um, women with kids, uh, non-criminal black men, et cetera, et cetera, or non-white liberals or non-affluent blacks. Uh, I don't I don't find that at all. I, prom- so I, I, I think this is crazy. I promised you I wouldn't bring you into the pastor's office and in any way try to change your opinion because I know you are strong in your opinion. I really want our listeners to understand and I want to understand. Uh, as you look back, and I, and I had an opportunity uh, uh, to be able to, to go to Ferguson after the death of Michael Brown and lead uh, a youth explosion where we brought you hundreds of youth together with the police to try to calm the divide. I've, I've had a chance to be in Staten Island after Eric Garner was killed, uh, you, 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 you got to look at these situations and, 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 and say to yourself, were these deaths necessary? Was it a case of over-policing? Are we definitely the victims of over-policing in minority communities? I, I, I really want to... Why did my question would be why does all the drama always have to be built on a lie? Hands up, don't shoot was a lie. The whole Breonna Taylor case, what we were hearing from the media, everything was built on a lie. So why why do we have to find why do we always find all the shadiness in the facts? But does the shadiness always come from uh, the and, and you know what? Let me let me let me step back because I get a little passionate about this subject. I will say to you, let's deal with the Breonna Taylor case. I will say to you that there are absolutely some facts in this case that need to be uncovered, uh, that need to be scrubbed, and we need to get a clearer understanding uh, of what took place that night. I will also say to you that woman didn't deserve to die. Uh, she did not deserve to die. Uh, uh, but but at the end of the day, we can also look on the side uh, of, the, of the attorney general and recognize that he did not not uh, share all of the necessary information with the grand jury in order for us to get a clear uh, investigation and understand what happened that evening. So I think if you talk about there not being truth on on one side, there's not truth on. A lot of times the truth is kind of uh, uh, shady on both sides. 
what, but what happened with the Breonna Taylor case, in my opinion, was the mob came up with their own conclusions and then wanted to create facts to fit those conclusions when no, we have to look at the facts and then create conclusions off the facts. So the attorney general couldn't go by the mob's rules of made up, the made up story of her sleeping, all these different things. That's simply not what happened. So when presented to the grand jury, he had to present what actually happened in the case, what's actually recorded, et cetera, et cetera. But he did not present exactly what happened. He did not present all of the evidence. All he went in for, Daniel Cameron, was one charge. One charge that basically was, hey, you shot into another building and that was reckless. He didn't talk to them about, he did not talk to the grand jury about the issues that we've been talking about this long. Why was this this woman murdered? Why were there so many shots fired into her building? Why were they there in the first place? Did they and were they there under, where did they secure the no-knock warrant legally with all facts and true evidence? We don't know the answer to those questions because he did not share all of that with the grand jury. But then it came out that he that they did knock, correct? They no, did not. It came it came out from one of the witnesses. One of the witnesses, and they interviewed several uh, that were in the building at that time. One of the witnesses said that they identified themselves uh, as police officers. And, and and let me be clear, because I've gotten into trouble myself over this case. Uh, I, I believe that those officers that went to roll call that morning and were told that they needed to be at the Breonna Taylor house for a raid that night. Uh, uh, to handle a no-knock warrant, they were going to do their job. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very firm on that fact. If there's fault and if, the, and if there's, and wait a second, let me say this. And if there was a gunshot that came out of the apartment to the cops before they shot, then I believe those cops went into a mode of, uh, well, number one, they're allowed to shoot back if they're shot at, but also if they're fathers, uh, if they're husbands, they went into a mode of, I'm going to get back home to my family tonight. I'm going to get right. back home to my family. I'm, 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 I, I, listen, I get in trouble for that position, but that's what I believe. Here's where I feel there's an issue. How did they get the no-knock warrant? Was the no-knock warrant secured through lies and wrong information? That's where this case falls apart, and that's what's not being exposed. And those that gave that information, that faulty information to get that no-knock warrant, their hind pots ought to be in jail right now. Gotcha. Yeah, I um, I mean, when you look at Breonna Taylor's life, what she was doing, the type of men she dated. Come on, I mean, come nobody, on, Christian. Come on, Christian. You can't, you can't do that. Says that anybody deserves to die. But when you make bad choices, you get in bad situations. And it was bad choices after another. There was no innocence driving your boyfriend to trap houses, laundering money, all the drugs. She was already on police watch. They were uh, they had a warrant out for her before. It's just like it's nonstop. I don't understand why we're always sitting here defending criminal behavior, bad choices. Nobody deserves to die. Make better choices. Do not date criminals. Do not put yourself in dangerous situations. You won't find me getting shot by a cop because I'm not going to date someone who's a criminal. I'm not driving people to trap houses. I'm not going to be laundering money. I'm not going to so, be having my boyfriend use me as a human shield one after another. And I told you we would have always, a. I told always. you we'd have a great conversation. But Christian, did you just go to one of your talking points because you ignored everything I just said. 
Um, I, I still don't know what you said and what that had to do with anything. <laughs> what I shared is that I'm. I, what I shared is, and I, I, I want to move to another topic because I'm enjoying talking to you. The point of the matter is, we need to uncover how the warrant was obtained. And I believe that the argument there, if we get all of the facts, we'll find out that the warrant was obtained through lies. And 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 the fact of the matter is, they should have never been at her house that night. So uh, I'm not going to argue. I'm not. But what, hold on one second. I'm not going to argue with you about Brianna's life because let's face it, neither you nor I really know her life. We don't know how she lived. We don't know. We do. all, all we know is through reports, and we don't know that those reports are necessarily 100% accurate. And even if they are, it's not ours to judge. What we need did to look at. The, did you see the pictures on Twitter of her holding the guns with her boyfriend, the big guns and the, all that? Did you see that? I, I've seen the pictures on and Twitter. I've, re- I've read. Being an EMT, absolutely. I've read the reports. I've read everything about her. My point so is, no why were they there. there that night? Why were what, they well, there why that night? Why she was doing all but, 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 but that, that does that does not even come into the conversation if they obtained a warrant through lies. That's what I'm trying to share with you. Where are you even getting that it could be a lie? That doesn't even make sense. It's been... It's been reported widely uh, uh, through through those that have done investigative reporting in Louisville, Kentucky. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the group Until Freedom. One of the reasons that they stayed in Kentucky for over a month, lived there, is because they wanted the facts brought out on how the warrant was obtained. Uh, it is It has been reported clearly that this warrant was not necessarily obtained through the truth. Uh, and so we need to investigate that. There needs to be another layer of investigation to find out if that was the case. I, I'm not going to go there with you, Christian, relative to her lifestyle, uh, because I don't think it's all right to judge somebody's lifestyle. I don't want anybody judging my lifestyle. You don't want anybody to judge how you live. We're free no, to no, live. No, no, no. But, but we're not. Here, go ahead. I'm if sorry. If I'm out here doing crazy crap, I don't expect you to defend my, me, my danger situation getting into either. I I got you. I got you. Let's jump to another topic. You're a big supporter of President Trump. Uh, your wow. father is a big supporter of President Trump. Uh, the election yeah. the election is coming uh, quickly. Ten days from now, uh, 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 we will we will have our official election day. Although all records have been broken as a uh, relative to early voting uh, and mail in ballots, uh, I think we're going to have an all time high as relates to turnout uh, uh, for this election. Talk to me very quickly about uh, the benefits of another four years of a Trump administration. I mean, it's just never ending. The the battle against political correctness, the fight for our free speech, the fight for, um, you know, keeping ourselves autonomy, the value President Trump places on Western civilization and not apologizing that we have a supreme culture in America, and again, culture is not a skin color thing. Our culture in the West is supreme to, let's say, Middle Eastern culture, throwing people off buildings and stoning women. Just the non-apologetic fight for American freedom is where, I mean, I could do that forever, so... So so the benefit of another four years is that he puts a priority on Western culture. Is that what you're saying to me? 
I, I mean, it, it, I, that's one thing. That's one thing that's super important to me. Um, it's the battle against political correctness, the fight for our freedom of speech, which was under attack under eight years of Obama and would have been further under attack had Hillary gotten elected. So I, that's what's really important to me. Um, his strong stances on immigration, as we kind of discussed, is not bowing. He does not bow down to the mob. He doesn't feel the need to... Uh, fall on his knees and say BLM. I just, it's just everything, everything. He also, he also, would you agree with me that John Lewis was a civil rights icon? Um, I mean, yeah. Would you agree with me that Elijah Cummings uh, did a, did a, did, did, did a wonderful job uh, uh, while he was in Congress or uh, I'm just asking your opinion. Um, I mean, no, I don't all right, but, but no, that's the reason I ask, because one of the things we look at a leader for uh, is to bring the country together and not create division. Uh, these two icons have died under his administration. He refused to go to their funerals. Uh, he refused to go even see their bodies lie in they were state. Awful at the, what does that matter if it, what does that I, matter I love, if you're the I leader of that. a country? You're the Remember leader of a Herman country. He, I do. You know, President Trump. He said he died that at a, he died after going to a Trump rally. When 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 um when Herman Cain dies or someone on our side dies, y'all make all these excuses. So that's just a bunch of bull crap. Now, okay, that's all right. Ball. So that's you ball. okay? It's, all right, that, that, that's fine. And, and, and this and whole this whole division and unity crap. I don't see my side running around burning buildings down, uh, breaking into stores, looting all this BS. So division, unity. We want unity. Let's stop burning buildings down for a terrorist organization that's domestic. Yeah, I think we've got domestic terrorist organizations uh, uh, running rampant in the country, and, and many of them are far-right extremist groups. It's been... No, 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 but remember, remember, I didn't bring you on to judge your opinion. I want to understand your positions, because right, all of us right. have had a chance to watch you and to see you uh, on these various social media platforms, and I just wanted to get a clear understanding, because what I'm hearing is that everything negative lies on the left, and everything positive lies on the right. I would tend to say to you uh, that 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 we've all got some issues. Uh, and, and the challenge is that we need people to bring us together to the table to work out our issues as opposed to having caustic conversation that further divides us. And I believe that this administration further divides us. It's not doing anything yeah, to bring no. us together. No, because the left has gone so far left. I have in Holly, I live in L.A., a lot of my friends who have always been on the left, classical Democrats, classical Democrats of the 80s, of the 90s, of JFK, and they say the left has gone further left. They've left us. They've left, the left has left the left. So just because the left goes extreme um, and the right is more, I don't know, the, I think the right encompasses more of the left, too, now. Does not mean we need to compromise or sit down to the table with radicalists who support a terrorist organization. Let's Absolutely do, not. Let's do I think we need to have honest conversations about what's actually reality and what actually supports our country and things like that. If that takes, you know, being quote-unquote divisive against terrorist organizations, then I'm happy to be divisive. Last point, uh, and, I, and again, I want to thank you for joining us. Carol Coronavirus, uh, eight million plus cases, uh, over one million deaths worldwide, 
220,000 deaths in the American in, in, in the United States of America. Uh, you don't think our president, uh, as the leader of this country, uh, has to take responsibility for our response to this virus? Nope. I think China has to take responsibility, and I think the WHO, and I think all these ridiculous hospitals calling COVID deaths, um, when someone gets a, hit by a motorcycle and they have a little bit of COVID in them, them counting that as a COVID death, I think they need to take responsibility. So when we think about the fact that he knew about this in January, and that's 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 on tape, that's on tape to Bob Woodward, and and he downplayed the issue, uh, so that there would not be any uh, uh, any any mass hysteria in the country. Uh, you don't think that if we had prepared two months earlier, we could have prevented some of these deaths, Christian? I I, 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 I think go ahead. I think I think we try. You know when. We, when he did try to act, when he did try to close the borders, when we were called xenophobic, we were called all these things. So I don't, that conversation does not need, that's ridiculous. Your side called us xenophobic when we did start acting. So I don't even try to switch up now. Joe Biden called him xenophobic. So was Joe Biden going to do better? Would your side have done better? You didn't even want to close the borders two months later. We're sitting, we're sitting, and I'm not ignoring your point. Again, I want people to understand how you're coming to your positions. We're sitting now uh, in the month of October, moving into November. Uh, small businesses are closing all across the country. Uh, children are out of school, can't get back in because the funds have not gotten into the to the uh, local communities in order to get these buildings properly fitted so that young people could learn in a safe environment. Uh, the buck has to stop somewhere. Uh, somebody right. has to take responsibility for this. Is it? Not, I look at presidents of the past who have pulled both sides into the Roosevelt Room and said, "Look, we got to come to an agreement for the American people." That's not happening in this administration. Pelosi says she hasn't talked to the man in over a year. Come on, Christian, the buck has to stop to somewhere. She wants global warming and the stimulus package. She wants all this ridiculous. It's not her. It's not um, President Trump refusing to send out another stimulus if that's what you're getting to. What do you want him to do? What's your perfect plan? Well, the perfect plan of if if, if if and I believe this, if Christian were president of the United States, if Jonathan were president of the United States, you bring both sides of the table and you don't leave that room until you come up with an agreement because the oh, people oh, that you oh, oh, because the people that you were brought to Washington D.C. to serve are suffering and we can't ignore their suffering and their suffering, suffering right now is Democrats. Excuse me. Um, Republican states are doing excellently. I think. I think you got. I'm in California. I, I, We're not doing excellently here, and it's because we have a crappy governor. It's up. It's left up to the governor. It's not left up to the, the president. Is, doesn't isn't here to babysit everyone. He's here to monitor people. States that are following uh, proper rules and doing the right thing are thriving, and states that want to act ridiculous are suffering. Democrat I, states suffering. Christian Walker. Social media phenomenon, son of NFL legend uh, Herschel Walker, and let's be very clear, a young man that's blazing his own path. I want to thank you for coming into the pastor's office, and I want to again share with our listeners, I promised Christian this will be a no-judgment zone. I wanted to really understand how he has come to the positions that he's come to, and then let, let people make their own decisions on his opinions and his position. Christian, I want to thank you for being an open man, and I wish you all the best to UCLA. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye Bye-bye I got to catch my breath. This has been a show today. Uh, I pray that you've enjoyed it. But most of all, I pray for each and every one of you as you prepare for a new week. Uh, I want you to encourage everyone this week. Make sure that they're getting out to vote. We can go to so many locations here in the Philadelphia area and those listening across the country uh, to vote early. But even if you go on Election Day, don't you leave that line until your vote is cast and until your voice is heard. This is the most critical election in the history of our country, and we need to make sure that we bring change to this country. I want to thank you again for joining us in the pastor's office. Have a great week, and we'll see you right back here next Sunday. Same Holy Ghost time, same Holy Ghost place. This is Pastor Jonathan Mason signing off. We love you. God bless you, and keep the faith.